It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Welcome into Friday, November 5th, 2021. I'm Guy Benson, and this is The Guy Benson Show. We air live 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. We also have a podcast that is free on demand and growing in popularity. GuyBensonShow.com is our online home. All the ways to listen live, including through our great affiliates across the country, odyssey.com a-u-d-a-c-y.com and many other options you can check them all out at guybensonshow.com and or you can get the podcast download individual episodes subscribe which we love to see maybe even leave a review preferably only if you like us guybensonshow.com here's the lineup today charlie hurt Coming up later this hour, I saw him in Loudoun County at the Glenn Youngkin rally on Monday night, his final event of the campaign. I was there to observe. So was Charlie. He's a Virginia guy. We'll get his reaction to that, some of the stuff on Biden, and some other wild stories from around the country. We love chatting with Charlie Hurt. That's this hour. In the next hour, Molly Hemingway is going to be here. Molly, of course, is covering very heavily the new indictment from John Durham, the prosecutor who was tasked by the Justice Department and former AG Bill Barr to assess the full waterfront of the Russia investigation. How did that Russia investigation and the alleged collusion, how did all of that start in the first place? A pretty significant indictment from Durham coming down yesterday, and Molly will bring us the details and the context. Sean Trendy of Real Clear Politics will also be here in the next hour. What does he see? He's one of the sharpest data guys when it comes to electoral trends. It's amazing that his actual last name is Trendy. Real thing. He will break down not just Virginia, but New Jersey, because he believes that New Jersey is the worst news for the Democratic Party. Why? We will get Sean's answer on that. And then... An extraordinary final hour on The Guy Benson Show today in the 5 p.m. hour Eastern. If you miss it or you're thinking that you might have to miss it, you're going to want to go check out the podcast on this one or you're just going to want to stay tuned for this one, even on a Friday afternoon into the evening. And the podcast, again, at GuyBensonShow.com, we will have two guests in studio. You probably have never heard of them, Ryan and Bill Ferguson. Ryan is 37 years of age. Bill is his father. They are basically the stars, if you would call it that, of a Netflix documentary called Dream Killer. Ryan, the son, spent 10 years, a decade of his life, in prison, convicted of murder. It was a murder that he did not commit. He was accused based on a dream 
that a supposed co-conspirator had, a dream. The evidence against him was made up. There was incompetence. There was corruption. There was a grave injustice. And his 20s, all of his 20s basically, were stolen from him. His father, Bill, knew that his son was innocent and set about trying to prove it. He did, but just proving it isn't enough. It takes a lot to get someone out of prison and a conviction overturned. That is exactly what Bill Ferguson was able to do. The story is unbelievable. The documentary is on one level inspiring, on another level absolutely infuriating. We are pro-law enforcement. We think our criminal justice system is good, but it is naive to say that there are not flaws and there are bad actors. And if you're on the fence on that question, boy, do you need to listen to this interview in the five o'clock hour. Ryan and his dad in a studio for the full hour, a story that you will not want to miss. And I would guess you might go rush out and watch the documentary after you hear our interview, four entire segments with Ryan and Bill Ferguson today on the show. That's coming up in our final hour, 5.05 Eastern time. Fox News alert as we get going here. Stats, coronavirus cases officially based on the tests all in throughout the pandemic in the United States, 46.3 million. Multiply that by three or four and you're closer to the real number. The death toll in the United States of or with COVID, 751,197. The Dow is up 220 points, currently trading at 36,343. So that's an all-time high. The market's probably buoyed by a very good jobs report, finally a good one today, with the expectations exceeded, which is good news. There's plenty of tough and concerning news out there on inflation, on the economy, on any number of fronts. But if more Americans are getting back to work and the job market is rebounding, that is good for everyone. Hopefully this is a trend. By the way, one other piece of good news since I mentioned, as I always do, the stats on COVID, Pfizer says that they have a therapeutic, a drug that has proven in clinical trials to reduce hospitalization or death from COVID by roughly 90%. This is not a vaccine. This is a treatment, a therapeutic for people who get infected by COVID. So now we've got the antibody treatment, a few other treatments that are out there. This looks very promising from Pfizer, right? There's the Merck drug as well that we've talked about on top of the vaccines that are extremely effective and safe. All of that points to, plus the natural immunity, a pandemic that is ending. A virus that will remain endemic, but treatable and preventable, and the worst outcomes being overwhelmingly warded off through a combination of factors. That is what it takes to be back to normal. We need to start acting like it in our society. That's the frustration that so many of us have. Okay, so let's move forward here onto a subject of the meltdown on the left in response to Tuesday's elections. I did a monologue on this yesterday in the first hour. I was not 
anticipating going off the way that I did. If you missed it, it's on the podcast from yesterday. We also posted it on the Fox News YouTube account. And last I checked, it had blown way past 150,000 views. Just my monologue. Just yours truly sitting there, sounding off. I had a few points that I wanted to make, but something just sort of built in me. And I don't really pop off quite like that too often, but it happened yesterday. 17 minutes. Just spitting fire. So you can go back and listen to it, but I have more. I'd like to follow up on it. Because yesterday, the White House weighed in on what happened. Here is the spokesperson who's filling in for Circleback, who we wish well. She's recovering from COVID. So Corrine Jean-Pierre is the deputy. And she was asked about some of the issues at play in Virginia. And, of course, what she had to say was this is just uh, a bunch of lying from the Republicans in cut two. America, as you heard the president say before, is a great country. Uh, and uh, and great countries are honest, right? They have to be honest with themselves about the history, which is good and, and the bad. And our kids should be proud to be Americans after learning that history. But we also need to be honest here uh, about what's going on here. Republicans are lying. They're not being honest. They're not being truthful about where we stand. And they're, and they're cynically trying to use our kids as a political football. So we got to be honest here. And they're not being honest. They're being incredibly dishonest. So that, in fact, is a lie. Right. What she just said is Freudian projection, almost perfect projection. What the Democrats are doing is lying, including the White House and that statement right there. That was not true. They are saying Republicans are lying about these issues and they're using kids as political pawns and footballs. That is exactly what the Democrats are doing in schools. And when people notice, they attack them with gaslighting. And this type of warping of reality where up is down. We have actually built the case with factual information multiple times over as we've talked about these issues now for months. Terry McAuliffe made exactly that same argument. Right in the face of all these controversies involving schools, he just said it's all a lie. These Republicans are lying. It's not true. Stop using our kids this way. Barack Obama came in, said it's all phony. It's all trumped up. And the voters said, no, we can see it. We're experiencing it. Stop telling us what we're seeing is a lie. Parents, white, black, Hispanic, Asian and other. So the Democrats in Virginia used this exact argument, and guess what? Thank God they lost. They lied and they lost, and rather than learn any lessons, the White House is doubling down. And it's not just the White House. This is just across the spectrum on the left. This is their talking point. Here is comedian Seth Meyers on his NBC show last night. Isn't this hilarious? You tune in for late night TV for some chuckles and you increasingly get lectures. I kind of wonder how on earth is Greg Gutfeld lapping the field now? How is he beating everyone in late night? Maybe because on NBC, Seth Meyers on his comedy show is saying stuff like cut 22. So Republicans of Fox News have successfully weaponized the panic over so-called critical race theory. But I'm sorry, it shouldn't be radical to teach children about the history of racism in American society. No offense, but kids should be able to read Toni Morrison without taking a Babadook in their pants. 
Hilarious. I mean, it's just like based on dishonesty, but the, all the buzzwords are, oh, Fox News, weaponizing. They've gotten their marching orders. They've gotten their talking points. They don't care that it failed in Virginia. They're just going to keep saying it. It's all a big lie, they insist. Well, is it? We've made the case. We've brought you factual information, but I want you to hear from a man named Tony Kinnett. He'll introduce himself. He's an administrator in a large school district in Indiana, and he exposes how this racket actually plays out. He has seen it firsthand. He's explaining it. Listen to Cut 19. I'm the science coach and admin in the largest public school district in Indiana. I'm in dozens of classrooms a week, so I see exactly what we're teaching our students. When we tell you that schools aren't teaching critical race theory, that it's nowhere in our standards, that's misdirection. We don't have the quotes and theories as state standards, per se. We do have critical race theory in how we teach. We tell our teachers to treat students differently based on color. We tell our students that every problem is a result of white men and that everything Western civilization built is racist. Capitalism as a tool of white supremacy. Those are straight out of Kimberly Crenshaw's main points, verbatim, in critical race theory, the writings that formed the movement. This is in math, history, science, English, the arts, and it's not slowing down. If students of color have lower reading scores, it's because of inequity. Therefore, we take from the white students and give to the color students. That's Richard Delgado, straight out of CRT and introduction. All teaching is political, with reality and facts taking the back seat. That's Dr. Gloria Ladson-Billings, who outlined how she saw critical race theory flushed out in public schools in 1995. So this man, Tony Kinnett, an administrator in the largest school district in Indiana, is explaining how the denial works. Oh, no, this is not being taught in our schools. This is not in our standards. Stop lying, Republicans. He's like, well, here's how it actually does work. The precepts, the garbage, the fundamental thrust of critical race theory and racialized curricula, equity, all of it, it is very much present in our classrooms. He goes on to put a finer point on it in Cut 20. When schools tell you that we aren't teaching critical race theory, it means one thing. Go away and look into our affairs no further. It isn't about transparency. It isn't about cultural relevance. It's race essentialism painted to look like the district cares about students of color. We call it anti-racism, so you feel bad if you disagree with our segregationist pedagogy. It's taking advantage of kids' vulnerability and parents' inactivity to preen over social snake oil schemes designed to create division. Parents, when we tell you critical race theory isn't taught in our schools, we're lying. Keep looking. Parents, when we tell you critical race theory isn't taught in our schools, we're lying. The White House, the Democrats, our cultural tastemakers, the Twitter activist mob, they all insist that parents who notice this stuff, they're the liars. People who object to it, we're the liars. The reality is the opposite. The Guy Benson Show just getting started on this Friday. Much more to come. Stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So the uh, insane asylum over at MSNBC continued yesterday. Joy Reid on her show had a guy, Michael Eric Dyson, who I used to go on with back 
when I did MSNBC before I worked at Fox. Guy, a fast-talking, shameless race baiter. That's it's his whole job. And so he was talking, and they were referring to people of color who are conservative. They're referring to Winsome Sears, the new lieutenant governor-elect in Virginia. And here is what this individual had to say about her in Cut 23. They want white supremacy by ventriloquist effect. There is a black mouth moving, but a white idea through the running on the runway of the tongue of a figure who justifies and legitimates uh, the white supremacist practices. We know that we can internalize in our own minds, in our own subconscious, in our own bodies, the very principles that are undoing us. So to have a black face uh, speaking in behalf of a white supremacist legacy is nothing new. I do this all the time. He once talked about Clarence Thomas being like a Jew who supported Hitler. He said that on MSNBC. They keep employing him. They think this is good stuff. Right? We've we've heard this ilk refer to Larry Elder as a white supremacist. He's a black man. Same crowd just recently said Condoleezza Rice is a conduit of white supremacy. And now it's Winsome Sears who just got herself elected statewide in a former member of the Confederacy long ago, first black woman elected statewide in the Commonwealth, first-generation immigrant, joined the military, served the country, served her community and homeless women with a shelter that she ran, a mother, an incredibly impressive person. And over on MSNBC, they are smearing her as a ventriloquist dummy spouting white supremacy on behalf of the white man. What an unbelievably insulting way to go through life. This is what happens when you think the wrong way according to these people. If she were a Democrat who were saying the right things according to the script, she would be a huge national story and they'd be singing her praises and talking about how she ought to run for even higher office as soon as possible. Instead, this disgusting smear job, they do it with relish. And I think a lot of people are absolutely tired of this bile, and I hope they continue to lose. It's the Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. As we continue here on the Guy Benson Show, bring you a little Fox News alert here as some reports are now breaking from Capitol Hill. They were going to try to tee up some votes today on the infrastructure bill, which is bipartisan, and then this rules vote to get to the Build Back Better reconciliation Democrat-only multi-trillion dollar spending bill. And as we've said before, and as we'll continue to say, we'll get into this later in the show as well, there's not even a CBO score yet 
on the reconciliation bill in terms of what it would cost, what the impact would be, the nonpartisan scorekeeper. They haven't analyzed it because it keeps moving and shifting and changing. Moderates are saying we want that CBO score. Pelosi wants to vote on it without a CBO score, which is nuts. So it looked like what they were going to try to do, and they, they started the wheels in motion here to get these votes going, and they were holding one vote open for like eight hours today. And what they're going to try to do is pass the infrastructure bill and then maybe vote on the rule to set up the Build Back Better vote. But the moderates were saying we're not going to vote on Build Back Better until we get a CBO score. And what we learned today is CBO saying, well, you're not going to get a score until at least a few weeks from now, like Thanksgiving-ish. So that was not going to happen today if the moderates stood firm. So what Pelosi wanted to do at that point was say, all right, well, why don't we pass the infrastructure bill and then we can wait for that CBO score. We can vote later on the reconciliation bill. And the progressives had said all along, no, we are not allowing that. These bills have to be linked together. We don't trust the moderates. We don't trust the Senate. These two things have to happen the same. Pelosi was trying to back away from that. And it looked like they were starting the process of maybe doing that today. But now we just got a statement out from the uh, the Progressive Caucus saying, no, we will not go along with this. We will kill the infrastructure bill if we vote on the infrastructure bill until we vote on these two pieces of legislation together. And if the moderates want to wait for a CBO score in a few weeks, then so be it. Let's all just wait and we'll do them together. So I don't know if the votes are dead officially today, but it looks like there's nowhere to go here which would be yet another Friday meltdown from the Democrats on Capitol Hill. With Pelosi saying that they were going to move forward on something and then not so much. So, look, I don't know if it's going to uh, eventually move forward. But it appears that another punt might happen because the Democrats are in disarray. Joining me now is Charlie Hurt, opinion editor at The Washington Times, Fox News contributor. Charlie, I want to talk about Virginia, a few other things with you. uh, But first, just your reaction uh, to what we're seeing on Capitol Hill today. I mean, it seems like the Democratic leadership continues to step on a rake and they're like, all right, gang, we're going for it without having everyone actually on board. And it's blown up in their faces. This would be the third embarrassment along these lines. Yeah, at least a third. Um, yeah, I, I think that the infighting that we have seen among the so-called progressives and the so-called moderates uh, among Democrats, we, we haven't seen anything like what we're going to see going forward. Uh, they are going to come unhinged um, in a way that, that makes the, the Tea Party and, and all of the disasters that Republicans have been through for the past 10 years look like child's play. Um, and a big part of that is the fact that, you know, think about this. Ten years ago, Nancy Pelosi was considered sort of, you know, she's from San Francisco. She's considered sort of, she was like the left wing of her party. She's now like what we would call a moderate in her party. Still not moderate, by the way. And there's, oh, by the way, also, you don't have to be a moderate to say, we would like to know how much this costs before we buy it. I mean, in what, uh, on what planet? Does somebody say anything other than, yeah, you know what? Before I buy that, I need to know what it costs. Well, Planet but, Pelosi but of, is the answer. Yeah, exa- exactly. Exactly. And then, and, 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 you know, but today, you know, she really does represent 
the sanest part of her party. But because she has not done that work of, um, and, and I, I don't know, because she, she's actually pretty good about standing up to, to, she's better than Republicans usually, at standing up to little mini insurrections within her own caucus. So I don't know whether it's the, well, the, not this it, time it got away from her. Yeah, exactly. Yep. It's, it, it's coming undone now. And I don't know that she'll ever be able to put, uh, put all that back together. And one of the arguments was, well, we don't really need a CBO score because it'll all change in the Senate. It's like, what? I, I mean, it's it's a wild thing to watch. And I have to admit, it has been sort of fun because Pelosi famously called herself a master legislator. Right. She was very proud of that. And it's not looking like a lot of mastery on display these days. Also, it's not easy to pass huge, massive structural changes when you have a zero vote majority in the Senate and what, a four vote majority in the House, uh, it's actually very inappropriate to even attempt to do so. They've done it and it's been a rocky road and the road has gotten rockier politically because there's a lot of people deriving their own lessons from what just happened, not just in Virginia, but New Jersey and elsewhere earlier this week. And the progressives, of course, have their theories on what happened. And I think they happen to be particularly nuts. And the moderates may have a better handle on what happened, but they need all of these people to get on the same page to pass any or all of this Biden agenda. And it's proving very, very difficult. Let's talk about Virginia, Charlie. I saw you on Monday night in Loudoun County. I wanted to go observe with my own eyes uh, the enthusiasm, the intensity on the ground. It was a final rally for Glenn Youngkin. You were up there as well. It was great to bump into you. And we were chatting with some campaign officials. They were giving us some of the numbers that they were seeing. And when everything shook out, it was a two-plus, a two-and-change point victory for the Republican ticket. You've got Governor-elect Yunkin and uh, Winsome Sears and uh, Jason Meares. It's, it's now a flip, of course, is the lower house as well uh, in the Virginia House of Delegates. As a Virginian, I just want to get your thoughts on the significance of this week's election in the Old Dominion? I think it's uh, massively significant, and, if, and it's more significant than the last time Republicans managed to win a statewide race, which was back in 2009, after Barack Obama got elected and after Obamacare and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's so much more important for two reasons. One is that Virginia is a very different state. Back in 2009, Virginia was still sort of purplish. It had gone for Obama for the first time, and I can't remember how long, but a very, very long time went for a Democrat. And so, so the, the state is a very different place today. It is a solidly blue state. It is a reliably blue state today. And for Republican, for, for Glenn Youngkin to pull off what he pulled off is an extraordinary feat. That's the first thing. The second thing is that it, it, it is a, an important reminder. And, and I hope, I pray that this is what comes out of this is that this is the moment where voters said, all right, enough of this, enough of the nonsense, enough of all the race baiting and the, the crazy, uh, you know, shutting down debate by calling everybody a racist versus, you know, Glenn Youngkin, who ran a very smart campaign. It was based on the issues. And, and you know, he, he, he did a great job of, of crystallizing those issues. And, and it sort of melded the whole thing about, you know, critical race theory and the crazy stuff that goes on school board meetings and all that kind of stuff with the platform of school choice more broadly, which is 
an exceedingly popular way. And I wish more Republicans would do this because you can you can pick off Democrats talking about school choice when Democrat voters are, are asked specifically. You take the, the, the words away and ask, do you like the idea of taking your public dollars and putting them towards a school that you have control over? You Republicans can win, can pick off Democrats that way. And, and independence, and of I course. I think that's what we thought. And of course, independence. Yeah, but it's, it was interesting. You know, I I, uh, I went to the uh, to, to the um, to the celebration party uh, the next day in in um, in Chantilly, and I was impressed by. Uh, you know, I I, I I hate looking at politics through the lens of ra- lens of race uh, through the lens of race because it is by definition racist, and it's what everybody in Washington does, and it's what pollsters do, and I think it's disgusting. But I have to say, I was struck by the diversity in the crowd at the Yunkin rally. And that diversity was a reflection of this issue of school choice. More, you know, again, broad, more broadly than just uh, charter schools or CRT or whatever. It's about school choice and giving parents the power to make sure their kids get a shot at the American dream through getting a good education. That is such a winner, and Republicans need to uh, figure out how to embrace that fully and run it nationally. Now, Charlie, what's interesting about Yunkin and Virginia, you and I are both conservatives. We have talked about our politics and our agreements and our disagreements on the air and off the air. We are different kinds of conservatives, right? You are full-blown just you know, in love with Donald Trump. You're MAGA from the very beginning. You love the guy. I am a very different place, you know, on on Trump and Trumpism. Uh, I'm sort of a sometimes Trump guy, not never, not always, but I'm more maybe like traditionally conservative in some ways. Both of us as Virginians were exceedingly motivated and excited to vote for Glenn Youngkin and for this ticket. And if you agree with that premise, I wonder how you think Youngkin was able to do that and motivate clearly the base because you look at the numbers just you know blowing it out in conservative areas of the state while also bringing in you know other kinds of republicans independents and even some democrats how did he pull that off in such an effective way well let me start by saying one thing that i think that as as you know republicans need to be careful about this one thing because you're exactly right obviously he did turn out uh, enormous enthusiasm among the base and among Trump voters. But it's also important to remember that, you know, Glenn Youngkin increasing his per- the percentage of the vote that he got in deep red places that love Trump is great, but it's not, but, but that's, but he increased it with percentage. That's not raw volume of voters. And there mm-hmm. were, there was less participation in this race than in, than in, uh, you know, a full, on-year election. And so it, but it was you know, a record-shattering off-year election turnout, and then there was also the, the shift up north and in suburbs around Richmond and stuff. It, it, was, it was a dance that had to be done, and he did absolutely. it. Absolutely. Absolutely. But this is the important thing. It's still the, the unanswered question remains whether or not another Republican— it's a, not a guarantee that the next Republican nominee for president— will turn out the numbers in a presidential year election 
the way Trump did. And, I, and my only point is that that remains the challenge for Republicans going forward in presidential races. Because, well, and, and I would I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I would also say because Republicans, you know, Trump was very, very motivating to the base. He was able to bring some new people absolutely into or back into the fold. There were other people who were driven away by Trump. Glenn, uh, Glenn Youngkin sort of tried to get those various strands and bring them together in one statewide election in an off year. When you think about an on year or presidential cycle, what does that look like? turnout for the Republican base. I think the flip side is also a question for Democrats because a lot of independents who were hostile to Trump and, of course, Democrats hated the guy so much they were as motivated as you can possibly get to show up and vote, maybe not for Joe Biden, but to defeat Donald Trump. Can the Democrats match that kind of fervor in the future, uh, you know, with their own base? That's another, I think, interesting question that we will continue to discuss and debate ahead of 2024. Charlie, I do want to give you an opportunity to amplify one of your tweets, which was a congratulatory tweet for your dear close friends of the Lincoln Project. You were very impressed with something that they've been, that they've been able to do. Uh, please explain. Yeah, so it's really funny. I did. I, I, I'm not much of a Twitterer, uh, as you probably know, but uh, but I did want to share my, my gratitude and uh, and congratulations with the Lincoln Project for their <laughs> extraordinary contribution to getting another Republican elected. But but nothing compares to the Yunkin campaign sending a fruit basket in appreciation to the Lincoln Project. Which I love. That, it, apparently that that may have turned out to just be a rumor and a, and satire is what I heard. But it it made it around fast enough that people were like, were telling me, no, no, that happened. Then apparently it didn't happen. And I'm going to leave it in the good, too good to check category because <laughs> exactly. they deserve it. Exactly. They deserve that fruit yeah. basket. They earned that fruit basket, whether it exists or yeah. not. I, I was afraid to check it out because I just, but I just so <laughs> wanted it to be true that, uh, and I guess in the end it doesn't really matter, but it was a, but either way, it is a brilliant, brilliant sentiment. Last but not least, quickly, Charlie, so much of this was about schools. A few friends of mine in Chicago sent me this story. Chicago Public Schools and the Teachers Union, they've announced that they're just going to cancel next Friday. Uh, It's a paid holiday for the teachers because they're calling it Vaccine Awareness Day. And we got a mental health day. We're seeing this mental health days that the teachers are just demanding and getting in some of these school districts. I mean, I don't think that this education issue is over if teachers and the unions in particular keep behaving this way one minute charlie yeah i don't i think you're right it's not over and um and and also it's a it's an issue that has been lying there right under republicans noses for a Mm -hmm. very long time and i pray that they wake up to it and realize that uh, that that it is a winning issue and it cuts across all party lines party persuasions and everything else that, you know, all the other ways that, that politics tries to divide people, it's a winner for everybody. All right, Charlie Hurt. It was great seeing you on Monday. It was wonderful to see the results come in on Tuesday. And great to have you back on the show for your thoughts. As always, Charlie Hurt, opinion editor, Washington Times, Fox News contributor. Charlie, have a great weekend. You too. Thanks, buddy. We'll step aside. We will return. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. 
We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. Still to come, Molly Hemingway. She's in the next hour along with Sean Trendy. And then a very powerful final hour. A young man who was sent to prison for 10 years. Convicted of murder. He had nothing to do with the murder. He's now a free man. Thanks to his father. Both of them join me for the full hour in the 5 p.m. hour Eastern here on today's Guy Benson Show. You know, one of the reasons that I think... Joe Biden won last year is because he was effectively promising low-key return to normalcy. And part of the reason he is unpopular is because we have not gotten that. And he's governed much further to the left than how he campaigned. In Virginia yesterday, there was a transition meeting between the governor-elect and the sitting governor, opposite parties. This sounded a lot like normalcy, and it's refreshing Cut five. This is Yunkin. What stood out to you in your meeting, sir? Uh, today was today was the beginning of a friendship, and uh, I appreciate that. And uh, I think that what's most important in a moment like this is to is to actually have someone who you can call and, and ask questions. And so I just appreciated that entire sentiment today. Um, it's also really fun, as, as the governor the governor said, that we share uh, one very important moment, um, and that is we both married up in a big way. Uh, and. <laughs> And the good thing is that we both acknowledge it and recognize it. And, uh, and that's going to be a, a great uh, way for us to develop a future friendship as well. Gracious and magnanimous and normal. More of that, please. Well done. We will step aside. Next hour of The Guy Benson Show is on tap. Molly Hemingway straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. It's The Guy Benson Show. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Underway in our middle hour of three on this Friday. Happy Friday, one and all. I'm Guy Benson here on the Guy Benson Show. Our website, conveniently, is GuyBensonShow.com. How about that? Podcast free every day. On demand, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give you a programming note again. We plugged it yesterday. I shared it on social earlier. Just a reminder, in our next hour, our final hour on the program today, an extraordinary full hour-long interview with a young man my age and his father. Ryan Ferguson, he's 37, a little bit older than I am. He spent 10 years, almost his entire 20s, in prison, convicted of murder, a murder that he had nothing to do with. He was accused and arrested based on a dream that someone had. There was incompetence. There was outright corruption. And a decade was stolen from him. But his father never gave up. His father made it his personal mission to get his son out of prison, and he succeeded. Their story is featured in an unbelievable documentary called Dream Killer. Ryan and Bill Ferguson, son and father, in studio for an hour here on The Guy Benson Show in the next hour. I promise you, you don't want to miss it. Listening live or on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. With us now 
is Molly Hemingway, senior editor at The Federalist, Fox News contributor, co-author of Justice on Trial, and author of the new best-selling book, Rigged, How Media, Big Tech, and Democrats Seized Our Elections. You can get that now on Twitter, at MZ Hemingway. Molly, great to have you back. Great to be here with you. I want to talk about the Russia allegations, the Steele dossier, and this new indictment. We'll get to that all in just a second. Before we do, I just want to pull back the curtain for a moment. This past Tuesday, I came in to Fox to do the show. You were in the green room, and we sort of huddled and had a hushed conversation about the Virginia election. And you were basically almost begging me not to raise your hopes because <laughs> you were like, I don't want to get too excited. I, I just don't want to expect a victory. I just don't know what's going to happen. And I was trying to give you little tidbits that I had heard that were shaping up decently for Glenn Youngkin and company. And, of course, hours later, we were exchanging text messages as the results came in and Glenn Youngkin and his ticket were elected and swept into office in a very high turnout election in Virginia. I believe that you said that you were doing a happy dance in your living room. I would love to see what that actually looks like. But your overall thoughts on the Virginia races now that we can breathe, frankly, a sigh of relief. So I believe I was yelling at you because your news, your sort of inside information was so good that I was angry because I didn't want to allow myself to hope that there was any chance. Because this happens all the time in Virginia that Republicans claim that they're closer than they are and then the final numbers come in and they're not so great. And boy, did boy did Tuesday night go incredibly differently than that. It wasn't just that Glenn Youngkin won. It's that the lieutenant governor, Winston Sears, won. She's the first black female elected Commonwealth-wide. The attorney general, the Republican attorney general won, and the Republicans flipped the House of Delegates. So it was just like a Mm -hmm. totally, you woke up the next day to a totally different Virginia, and it was crazy because where we live, that's not, those are not the viewpoints shared by many people. Um, True, although they're shared by enough people, right, to make some inroads, and it did feel different this time down the closing stretch of the campaign, and sometimes you can get yourself convinced, right, through wish casting, okay, maybe it really will be different when the data doesn't back it up. This time it just felt like that, that perfect storm where it felt different because it was different, and then the voters voted by the millions, and the results were indeed different. And you've got a, a Republican flip in a state that just one year ago, Joe Biden won handily by 10 points. But you're right. You were you were not full-blown scolding me. But as I was telling you what I was hearing and seeing, I believe you said the word stop <laughs> several times. Like, d- stop telling me these, stop telling me these things. I'm starting to get happy and excited and I, and I can't let myself go there. My MO is that I protect myself by predicting or preparing for scenarios that I might have to deal with rather than what I actually think might happen. And, you know, it was crazy, as you know, how Northern Virginia, which never has a Republican sign up, had tons of Republican signs. And I'm, I'm sure your Democrat friends were saying what my Democrat friends were saying, which is that they were voting for Yunkin. And it was clear that, you know, Biden voters were crossing over to vote for Yunkin. Oh, yeah. I mean, you had Loudoun County, where it was Biden plus 25, ended up McAuliffe plus 10, right? That's still a Democratic win. But when you can eat 15 points into Loudoun County, that's the type of math that gets you to a two or three point statewide victory in Virginia in a place where even just a few months ago, I think a lot of the experts were just shaking their heads saying, nope, no chance. And 
Not only was there a chance, it happened, and New Jersey ended up being extremely uncomfortable for the Democrats uh, up and down the ballot. We will talk to Sean Trendy about that coming up later this hour. All right, Molly, I was very eager to talk to you today. There was an indictment handed down by this uh, special prosecutor or special counsel, whatever the exact term is, John Durham. There were conservatives who were frustrated for many, many months. Where is this guy? What is he doing? Is anything going to come of this? Sort of his review of the origins of the Russia investigation and that whole saga that hung over the Trump administration, hung over our politics for years. There was one indictment of a Democratic lawyer a couple of weeks ago. We talked about that. This new indictment seems more significant to me. Can you explain to the audience what has happened? Do you agree that it is significant? And what is that significance? So it's definitely significant. I read through the indictment. I'd actually like to read through it a few more times because there is so much there. And I just want to say, I'm, you know, I'm someone who's wasted years of my life following this story, and you kind of think nothing's ever going to happen. This indictment yesterday had so much new information that I had never even gotten a hint of before that it really impressed me about the thoroughness of Durham. With Sussman, you know, Sussman has already testified before a congressional committee. We knew he worked for the law firm Perkins Coey that had kind of orchestrated the whole hoax that Trump had Sussman is the Democratic lawyer who was indicted for lying to the FBI a couple weeks back. But yesterday you have this indictment of someone that we did know was the key subsource for the for the sort of fraudulent dossier. You we already had known that he'd probably lied about some of what was mentioned there, but we learned more about how he lied. We learned that he had had many more interviews with the FBI. We learned that the FBI knew he was lying in 2017 and did nothing about it. Um, we learned that there was this top Clinton affiliate who was himself a source for the dossier. We learned more about how the dossier. And by the way, let me just let's linger there for a second. Let's linger there for a second because I think this is actually quite important. This key subsource for the Steele dossier, right, this this ex-spook and Brit who put together this unverified – some of it has been just debunked. The rest of it largely not authenticated at all or backed up. One of his key sources was this figure, right, that was known to us. But one of the people feeding him information and therefore like through this game of telephone getting to Steele and then put into this dossier – paid for by the Democratic Party, paid for by the Clinton campaign, handed off to law enforcement, the FBI, et cetera, as the key reason to pursue this investigation and get FISA warrants and all of that. It was central to all of it based on a bunch of bogus stuff. Some of the bogus stuff was fed to steal, we now know, based on this indictment, from someone deeply connected to the Clintons and to Democratic politics. He you know, was uh, a high – level person at the Democratic Governors Association. He worked on both Bill Clinton campaigns in the 90s. He was connected closely to the Hillary campaign in 2016. I mean, it just is starting to look, Molly, to me, like this cycle of garbage where at every sort of element at each turn, it's Democratic supplied, Democratic paid for, And then laundered into the intelligence and law enforcement realm with some lies of commission and omission that we're now starting to see indictments over. I mean, it's kind of like what conservatives had alleged all along without proof, 
saying, you know, we wonder how this all came together. This is looking about as bad as folks like you suggested that it might have been all along. It's almost even worse. Like, it's the worst case scenario for all of the information, because the thing about this new source that nobody had ever interviewed before that was a key aspect of this dossier is he provided some of the most salacious stuff. Uh, in one case, he's the one who was the source for saying that there was a you know, vast conspiracy with the Trump campaign in Russia. That's the part that gets used to get the four FISA warrants. And he says he completely made it up. He also appears to be key for the most salacious source, which was the urination and the hotel mm-hmm. in Moscow. And so it's it's I think people thought that a really bad scenario would be that Clinton operatives motivated by politics took advantage of information that was out there. Now it's so obvious that the information wasn't really out there. It was invented by some of these people who were themselves Clinton associates. It is, in that regard, maybe a worst-case scenario for Clinton. So it's looking bad for the FBI, but perhaps worse for the Democrats, because it looks like there were operatives and political people lying to the FBI to sort of get them on the scent to then do their dirty work for them. And now those lies are being uncovered by this germ investigation. And Molly, again, you know so much more about this stuff than I do, and you have covered it so closely for so long. My general impression here is that we are not even anywhere near done. I feel like there is much more still to come and that Mr. Durham For all the critiques that he took from some conservatives and Republicans, you know, what's he doing, twiddling his thumbs, what's the delay? Seems like he was building what may turn out to be a very thorough and frankly devastating case that we are starting to now get a peek at. Does that sound about right? I think that, first off, criticism about his pace is legitimate. It's been a slow pace because there's the old justice delayed is justice denied. This Russia collusion hoax impacted the 2016 election the 2018 election, the 2022 election. And so to have it go slowly is on is not great. Um, It is definitely true that the man is thorough and and dots his I's and crosses his T's. And that's very good. But I do think it'll depend on how well he's able to go after a couple additional groups. There were always three groups of people. There were the Clintons who bought and paid for it. There were the media who laundered it and, and did so much to make it cause harm to the country. And there were the intelligence officials themselves who were leaking and manipulating information. I don't know how much you can do against the media, given our laws, even though what they did was deeply harmful to the country. They're largely protected because of Supreme Court precedent, whereas the FBI really should be held accountable. I heard from so many former agents yesterday who said there is no way these people did not understand what was going on. These they they there, it is inexcusable that they allowed this to be weaponized by themselves. Um, so I wonder if Durham has the political power to do what really needs to be done, which is, you know, all fair in politics, guy. Like, people use oppo research all the time. You need to have law enforcement that's smarter than that and that doesn't allow itself to be used. And so I think we'll find out more based on whether he's able or willing to go after some of the people who did so much harm to the FBI. Right. And, and that it. remains to be seen. But again, what we're starting to get a glimpse of is is very serious and pretty shocking. Last two questions. I'll ask them both. We have two minutes left, Molly. Number one, I saw a report. Foxnews.com had this. ABC, CBS, NBC, their nightly newscasts, right, during dinner time. 
None of them covered this indictment, even though all of them covered the controversy and the scandal, right, for years. The scandal is now unraveling in a very significant way. It's a, it's a different scandal now, and it is getting far less attention. You can comment on that. And then lastly, I asked this on Twitter earlier today, the Mueller investigation, right? That whole process that was supposed to ferret out the truth and what truly happened between Trump and Russia, if anything, how could it be that Mueller and team would miss all of this stuff unless they were not interested in finding it? I think that both situations deal with the same problem, which is there's no way corporate media will cover this unraveling of the hoax or accountability for the hoax because they were the primary practitioners of the hoax. They can't come clean without admitting error. You saw the way the Washington Post put it, like uh, some of these revelations cast doubt on earlier reporting about the dossier, including what was in the Washington Post. And it's written by a guy who got a Pulitzer Prize for participating in the hoax. He's not going to do what's necessary to come clean. And likewise, I think the question is devastating about the Mueller probe. Of course, they, of all people, with their money and their time and their energy, should have uncovered this. They, of course, knew the reality of this hoax. Why didn't they say it? I think the answer is devastating. Like, they were doing their job, and their job was not to uncover the truth. Molly Hemingway, senior editor at The Federalist, Fox News contributor. Her latest book is Rigged. And the developments over the last few days play into that thesis of her book, which is a bestseller. You can find it where books are sold right now. Follow her on Twitter at MZ Hemingway. Molly, always appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Guy. Molly Hemingway on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We're back here on The Guy Benson Show. So last night, the Democratic leadership in Congress, the House in particular, said, all right, the votes are going to happen on infrastructure, on Build Back Better. We're going to have votes tomorrow, i.e. Friday, on these bills. It's like, all right, here we go again. They've had a few false starts on this already. Do they actually have the votes this time? Well, it's unclear. There are some moderates in the House caucus who are insisting, and this seems like a no-brainer, on having a CBO score, right, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, to actually look at the legislation that they were talking about voting on today that has not been scored, analyze it, give us the true cost of it and the impact. This is what happens with legislation. This is major legislation to the tune of trillions. Getting it under $2 trillion is just Smoke and mirrors. It's gimmicks. This is a multi-trillion dollar spending bill. And Nancy Pelosi wants the House to vote on it without a CBO score. But some it's crazy, right? That is totally insane. Shockingly reckless governance. But there are some moderates saying, we're not going to do that. We have to have a CBO score. And then it has emerged today that a CBO score would not be available until Thanksgiving week. Right? We are weeks away from that. So then what? Do they move forward with the infrastructure vote and then just wait on the giant reconciliation bill? Or does that not really work? Are they going to vote on a rule to try to keep some progress and momentum going? That is still very much in flux. They may not get any of the votes done 
today. They may have to punt this again, having announced both votes last night. So the disarray is not over yet among Democrats as this drama continues to play out. We're following it on The Guy Benson Show, and we'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Happy Friday. It's The Guy Benson Show. Appreciate you being here. I'm Guy Benson. A reminder, coming up in our next hour, our final hour of the week, a story that you do not want to miss. A father and son in studio, the son roughly my age, Ryan Ferguson. He spent 10 years in prison for a murder that he did not commit. He was innocent, and his father committed himself to getting his innocent son out of prison, and he did. How did the conviction happen in the first place? How did they reverse the conviction and get justice? They will tell their full story here. It is going to be incredible. That's coming up in the final hour. Joining us now is Sean Trendy, Senior Elections Analyst at RealClearPolitics.com. Sean, it's great to have you back on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I want to talk about the elections on Tuesday. I've been very eager to get your take on the air. I've read some of your commentary at Real Clear Politics and on Twitter. Let's start with Virginia. You seemed online pretty skeptical of the Republicans' ability to actually win in Virginia leading up to that race. And it was one of the things that kept me nervous until the very, very end. But they pulled it off. You've looked at the maps and the demographics and the dynamics at play How were they able to do it? What are the big takeaways out of Virginia? Well, I I think the the big takeaways are, first, it it was a generalized shift towards Republicans in that state. It wasn't something that was, like, concentrated in the suburbs, which, if the narrative had held about this being all about education or critical race theory, I think is what we would have expected to see. I think it's general disenchantment with the Biden administration. Plus, you have to throw in, and I don't think I've given this it's due, but you have to throw in that, that Youngkin ran a smart campaign. He may have picked the lock on how to run Trumpism without Trump. And in that sense, how did he do it? Right? Like what was what was the magic key to make that work? Because he's really not a Trumpy guy. He does not read as a Trumpy guy, and yet the MAGA base turned out for him in astounding numbers. Yeah, so part of it was that I think was that Trump kind of got involved sideways, you know, endorsing him, even though Youngkin didn't appear with him. But look, Youngkin didn't back down from cultural issues, although he had a lot to offer um, besides CRT. He wasn't afraid to talk about that and about parental involvement uh, in schools. And even though he was a businessman, he didn't really run as a cultural libertarian. He had the school choice issues, but he was also talking about, you know, paying teachers more, about building more schools and repairing crumbling schools. Um, and I think, you know, for, for lower income voters across the board, if you can ditch, even though I, I am sympathetic to economic libertarianism personally, if you can ditch the economic libertarian label as a candidate, I think it pays dividends. When you look at the map of Virginia and you look at some of the counties that everyone was watching extremely closely, Glenn Youngkin was able to run up the score the way he needed to in the southwestern part of the state, rural parts of the state, conservative parts of the state. He did well in the suburbs and he did well enough 
in Northern Virginia, sort of just outside Washington, D.C., cutting into the Democratic margins. And those were all the things that anyone who followed the race even remotely closely would understand. All right, those are the tasks that he had to achieve if he was going to have a shot at winning because this was a Biden plus 10 state. He had to do a lot, right, overcome a lot to get to even, you know, plus one or plus two, let alone two or three, which is what he ended up winning by. As you look at that map and you look at some of the places that shifted and you look at what the Republicans were able to do in terms of their own base turnout, but also persuading, I think Youngkin deserves credit for bringing people back into the fold, maybe former Republicans, maybe uh, you know a good number of independents. He won independence by a significant margin. Part of the story also, Sean, that I was thinking about leading into a possible Youngkin win was depressed Democratic turnout, but that really didn't happen. It wasn't amazing gangbusters turnout for the Democrats, but they had pretty darn good turnout themselves, and Youngkin and the Republicans were able to overcome that. I think that's an undersold part of this overall story, how big the turnout was and the Republicans winning a large high turnout election. Yeah, I, I, you know, the old conventional wisdom was that Republicans don't do well in high turnout elections. And I think that has been put to rest in election after election, um, you know, and, and certainly in this. Uh, d- Terry McAuliffe got more votes than Ralph Northam got four years ago, mm-hmm. like a lot more votes, 200,000. Yep. It's just that, that Glenn Youngkin blew the roof off. Some of this is the agitated Republican base all turning out in droves, but I think some of it is appealing to downscale whites who maybe weren't so concerned, so convinced by Ed Gillespie's campaign. I think some of it, too, is that, you know, I, we have to be honest, like, Youngkin probably won more non-white voters than any Republican ticket since the 1960s. Um, which is, you know, astonishing given what most people were predicting for the future of the Republican Party. So I do want to ask you about that, right? Because a lot of people, you know, you've got progressives on the left and we talked about it yesterday again today, reacting very badly to these losses and they want to call it all racism and it's white supremacy rearing its head again. And it's all nonsense. It's a disgusting smear of voters. And I know one of the pushbacks that I've seen from conservatives is, Well, look at the ticket on the Republican side. Yes, you had Glenn Youngkin at the top. You also had a black woman and a Hispanic man rounding out the top three statewide races, which the Republicans swept. I think that is an interesting and good argument, a rebuttal to make. But I think it is not as convincing, more broadly speaking, as what you just referenced, which was voters of color, not overwhelmingly coming to the Republican side, but incrementally coming to the Republican side I've seen some of the exit polling, Sean, and the Fox News voter analysis is what we call it as opposed to an exit poll. Our data about the Virginia electorate shows that Glenn Youngkin won Hispanic voters outright. However, some of the exit polls from the other networks show Terry McAuliffe won by double digits among Hispanics and Youngkin was in the 30s. Do you have any insight into why there's such a disparity there and what lessons can we actually draw if the numbers are like 20 points apart, depending on which exit poll you look at, do you do you split the difference and say it was probably somewhere in the 40s percent wise of Hispanics? And maybe if you want to comment on black voters as well, feel free. So first off, I think this I, I think you're you're absolutely right about the, the ticket. And that's something a lot of people overlooked. It was, the, you know, a, a, an African-American immigrant woman, uh, a Jamaican immigrant 
and, and a Hispanic male uh, for, for lieutenant governor and, and AG. But I also think we kind of missed the forest for the trees, which is that even if Youngkin was down in the mid to high 30s, that's still better than any GOP presidential ticket has done in the last 40 years, except for uh, George W. Bush running uh, in 2004. Um, you know, D- Mitt Romney was down in the 20s with Hispanics. Um, John McCain, I think, maybe was in the low 30s with Hispanics. So if Youngkin is, quote unquote, only at 37 percent or whatever, that's still a very good showing uh, for a Republican candidate. Um, but look, I, it, it's hard to know exactly what exit polls uh, have their problems um, right. th- that I have to get. I'd have to get way down in the weeds to explain, but they have problems. Um, but I, other, I would just say, other, let me let me ask you this, just as a heuristic, right? Just for the average person, this okay? Uh, the Fox News voter analysis had, I believe, Youngkin at fifty-four percent among Hispanics, and the other exit polls had him, at, let's just say, around thirty-four, thirty-five percent. Is it reasonable for me to say, just for the sake of argument, let's split the difference and put it in the low to mid forties? Is that a crazy shortcut? What I was winding up to was, yeah, if you look Got at it. the precinct level data, it's pretty clear there was a swing towards Republicans, and I don't think it's just a split the difference thing. I think that's that's where the precinct level analysis probably leads you as low forties, which is spectacular. Okay, and then I know with black voters, it's always tricky. Trump actually made significant gains with Hispanics and some black voters in 2020 in particular. Glenn Youngkin, all the exit polls showed him at 13 percent, and that does not sound like a great number. However, you look back at recent history, if a Republican presidential candidate, for example, can get 13 percent of the black vote, I mean, that's a pretty big deal when you extrapolate that across the country and extrapolate that into certain swing states in particular, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, no, the Northern Democratic Party in states like Ohio and Wisconsin re- relies upon winning 90 percent of the black vote to stay competitive. It, if it falls into the, even the mid 80s, they have serious issues uh, remaining competitive in these states. Now, in your Real Clear Politics piece, three takeaways from Virginia and New Jersey, you say it was a bad night for Democrats in Virginia. You say it could have been worse in the Commonwealth of Virginia for Democrats. Um, actually, let's just pause there for a second. Why wasn't it worse? Well, I think there's. if you're looking for bright spots as a Democrat, there's two things. Um, the first is that they didn't completely lose the gains they had made in the suburbs. You know, when, when Bob McDonald won in 2009, he won by 17 points, and it's because he actually carried Fairfax County. Terry McAuliffe still carried Fairfax County handily, uh, so you know th- there's still some gains that have been held on to with uh, uh, upscale suburbanites, which, which Democrats are going to need now uh, if they even hope to remain competitive. The other thing is that because it was kind of a uniform swing across the state, it suggests that there isn't a uh, unique issue that Republicans have latched on to in order to win, that this is probably in part generalized malaise with the Biden administration. Um, you know, and the fact that Youngkin was just a good candidate who could appeal broadly statewide, it isn't like something has caught fire to help Republicans. True. Although it's a D plus 10 or at least a Biden plus 10 state, if you look at that discontent and you transpose that onto other races in 2022 in swing districts and battleground states that are nowhere close to D or R plus 10, 
you know, what the Republicans just did in Virginia would probably put a shiver up the spine of a lot of Democrats. I know that's been the case this week. But you say your final third point in your piece is the worst news that you see to your eye out of Tuesday night was not in Virginia from the Democratic perspective. The worst news was in New Jersey. Explain. Yeah, so first, uh, first by, by saying it could have been worse, that's a low bar to clear, right? It's still very, very bad uh, uh, for the Democrats. Uh, in New Jersey, it, it really was ugly. You know, this was a state that Biden won by approaching 20 points. For this to be like a one or two point race uh, is just a catastrophic outcome for them in a state that is basically a giant suburb. Um, you know, when you really dig down into New Jersey, you can look at heavily Hispanic areas and see that they really shifted radically uh, toward the Republican from 2017, uh, and that the Republican gubernatorial candidate, who was pretty low profile, managed to hold on to Trump's gains from 2020. And you see continued erosion of Democratic support in some of the blue-collar areas. Uh, so, yes, Democrats are holding, on, holding their own in some of the uh, wealthier upper-middle-class suburbs, but it looks there like they're bleeding out everywhere else. Uh, and that is just a really, really bad forecast for them for 2022. Sean Trendy, Senior Elections Analyst at Real Clear Politics. Sir, always appreciate your insights. Thank you very much. The Guy Benson Show resumes after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It is The Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday. So we heard a story earlier on the phone call planning the show from producer Christine about her daughter, Megan, who is wise beyond her years. It's kind of unlike her mother, actually. She looks exactly like her mother, and that's where the similarities seem to end. Christine, please tell us what your daughter did today. I'm so proud of her. So I don't know if everybody knows this, but Christmas music has officially begun on the radio. So I was driving Megan to school today, and I turned on the radio, and I hear Holly Jolly Christmas, and I literally scream. I am so excited. So I'm driving, driving. I blast it. I'm looking in the rearview mirror, and she is glaring at me like I have two heads, and I'm. it's the craziest thing she's ever heard or seen. So I lower and I say, Megan, what's the music? Like, you have to be so excited. And she's still my husband. She looked at me and said, Mommy, it is not even Thanksgiving yet. Turn yes. the Christmas music off. Yes. I couldn't Did you? believe it. She, I, I lowered it, but I was like, she's <laughs> going to want to hear this. Like, there's no nope. way. Uh, no, she asked me to put Kids Bop on. Good. She was Kids she Bop really for the it. win. Absolutely. It's November 5th. I don't do Christmas music until December 1st. We mention this and we fight about it every yeah. year. December 1st is when Christmas music and decorations are allowed in my book. I'm willing to concede that it's okay after Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving being my favorite holiday. Skipping past Thanksgiving to me is totally unacceptable. And the fact that Megan rejected your Christmas music, your premature Christmas music. I just, her stock just keeps going up in my book, Christine. I have to say, bravo, little Megan. She's right. I don't believe it because I'm going to try it again when I pick her up because 
I, I just, I, I mean, she's going to hear Mariah Carey, and nope, going to want to stay. Nope, it's too early. Also, and like, she's made her position clear. Not. You don't have to test her. <laughs> she's already come out clearly against premature, too early, early onset Christmas music. Just respect the girl's wishes. She knows what she's talking about clearly. By the way, I wanted to bring this to you as well, Christine. I got a note from a listener who a big fan of the show, always appreciate hearing from you guys saying, you know, I love the show and all this stuff. She just wanted to express some concern about producer Christine and our frequent discussions of Mama's Juice. And she just wanted to express that she was worried that producer Christine might actually have a problem and we shouldn't make light of it. (laughs) So... I just oh yeah yeah I, I can I can see why people would be worried I understand yeah I just okay. want to clarify right for the record <laughs> we play this up significantly Christine likes her mama's juice and her cosmos you know like any gal but we I would say perhaps dramatize slightly the amount that she drinks and I feel confident saying folks at home can be rest assured that producer Christine. Uh, is not in need of an intervention here. And so as much fun as we poke on this <laughs> front, uh, it is mostly in jest. Say a kernel of truth and all that, but like it is mostly in jest. So I wanted to just reassure people who might be, among other things, just worried about the well-being of producer Christine. She's got all sorts of problems. This is actually not one of them. Thank you, I think, guys. <laughs> I think, yes, you're welcome. Do you want to expand on this oh, at all, or did I capture it? No, yes, no, I think I definitely think we played this up just a little. Let's be honest. I'm not sloshing around every single night and every single day. I don't think Bobby would put up with that, so don't you worry. It, it's yeah, all no, you'll, you'll have a few fun. glasses on the weekend, occasionally on a, on a oh, school yeah. night, but it's, it's, it's actually pretty typical. Uh, we just like to have some fun at Cookie's expense, and this is one front that allows us to do that, so... As another host likes to say, let not your heart be troubled. Now, with that said, something that is actually genuinely troubling is a story that we're going to convey to you in the next hour. We almost never do a single interview over the course of an entire hour, but our final hour today is going to entail a father and son in studio. The son, Ryan Ferguson, spent 10 years in prison, convicted of murder. He was innocent. His father was determined to get him out. The story is unbelievable. It is next on The Guy Benson Show. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy hour on a Friday here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website, the podcast, free every day. And the happy hour sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink. 21 plus only, as always, drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. It's delicious. Find out where it's sold near you. TheLongDrink.com. So a few weeks ago, here on The Guy Benson Show, we were talking about one of producer Christine's bad dreams that she was having. 
And over the course of that nonsense conversation, my brain took an off-ramp and went down the path of dreams. And I remembered, it just flickered, a documentary that I had watched now probably a year or a year and a half ago called Dream Killer, which is now available on Netflix. And it was about this guy who spent a decade in prison for a murder he did not commit. And it turned out that I actually have, through my husband, a family connection to this guy. And I found the documentary, honestly, one of the most shocking things I've ever seen. I could not believe that what happened to my next guest would be possible in the United States of America under our criminal justice system, which we all know is imperfect and needs improvement, but you hope would have enough safeguards to avoid the absolute travesty that occurred years ago. Ryan Ferguson spent nearly 10 years, as I mentioned, in prison. He was wrongfully convicted of a 2001 murder in his hometown, Columbia, Missouri. It was a sports journalist, if I recall correctly, who was murdered in a parking lot. At the time of the murder, Ferguson was 17 years old and in high school. He was arrested two years later based on evidence that is not evidence. And he was convicted on that fake evidence. He is now, thank God, out of prison because really of the work of one person who is also in studio with me today. Ryan now is roughly my age, a few months apart. He's a certified personal trainer. He's an advocate against false convictions, which would make sense. I think I might dedicate my life to that too if I were in his shoes. I think I might be a lot angrier, frankly, and more bitter of a person if I went through what he went through. He's author of the book, Stronger, Faster, Smarter, A Guide to Your Most Powerful Body. Ryan Ferguson, we'll get to your father here in a second, but I'm delighted to meet you. It's sort of surreal having watched this movie. It's like it's like you're a celebrity in my mind. I'm grateful that you spent some time and came in studio here to join us. Yeah, Guy, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And really any opportunity to discuss our criminal justice system, which is inherently good, but does have flaws, and, and we can discuss what can and needs to be fixed within that system, it's a, it's a great opportunity. So let's just talk through the basics of the case. And I would strongly encourage folks who are listening right now, do yourself a favor, make an appointment with your Netflix subscription and watch Dream Killer, honestly, and just buckle up. But for people who may not have Netflix or what have you, we don't have to go into the entire story, but just give us the big bullet points, the timeline. You're a high school student, someone gets murdered in your hometown, Two years later, you get arrested. Why? Great question. Uh, you know, I often ask myself that same question. Why? Uh, so a murder happened when I was in high school. You don't really think much about it. You know, that happens in, in your town. And uh, it was weird. I remember, you know, people were like, wow, that's a Halloween night. Somebody's murdered. That's all you think about it for two years. And then I'm arrested. They don't tell me why. And they don't even tell me what for. I have midterms the next day. I'm more concerned with my midterms. Then talking to the police, I'm like, they're just going to do their job, ask me what they got to ask me, and then I'll go home. Uh, long story short, a friend of mine from high school had a dream about the murder, unbeknownst to me, and he literally tells the police, if I did it, Ryan, I'm Ryan, must have been with me. And that's what I was arrested on. That's why they started questioning me. And A, all, a yes. dream. This is why it's called Dream Killer. Correct. A friend of yours from home had a dream that... He may have committed this murder, and if he did it, if, you did it with him. Correct. And you get arrested. To me, that's wild even to just get arrested, let alone all the steps forward to conviction, which obviously happened because you end up in prison for 10 years. You must have still felt like, okay, well, this is clearly a wrongful arrest. 
this is going to get cleared up somehow. I mean, I didn't do this. This is crazy. Dreams are not evidence. What the hell is going on? At what point did you start to realize, uh uh-oh, this might turn into something where I could go to prison based on, like, testimony, quote-unquote, of a, quote-unquote, co-conspirator based on a dream? It's a great question. I— you know, it, it took time to realize what was really happening to me. Whenever I was picked up and questioned, I didn't realize at the time that I was under arrest. I mean, they arrested me without an investigation. So I was arrested and then they investigated. So for months and months, evidence would come out and it would all show that I was innocent or I was not there. It would help prove my case. And I'm in the county jail at this time. And my bond, I didn't have bond for nine months. And then they gave me a $20 million bond, $20 million. $20 million. Other people with the same charge had a bond for $500,000. Mine was $20 million. So you can see that they were biased against me. It wasn't about right and wrong and, and a fair hearing, essentially. It was about trying to prove a point that we are going to arrest you, we're going to put you in prison, and you're a horrible person without having done any investigation. So every time evidence would come back, like the tire tool that they tried to say was used, and it showed that it was not used and it had nothing to do with the crime. As the weapon. As the weapon, correct. Uh, it had nothing to do with the crime. It would come back, and I'm like, okay, they're going to come open the doors and let me out of this cage and back into society because now they can see that I'm innocent. And time after time, things like that would happen, and they never opened those doors. And so months of my life went by, a year of my life went by, and then I realized it doesn't matter what evidence proves my innocence. They're going to try to convict me no matter what. We're going to get to how this all finally unraveled and how you did get out in a second. But talk about the conviction. Talk about that moment where the jury decides that you are guilty of something that you did not do based on evidence that is, I mean, flimsy doesn't even begin to cover the evidence that I put in air quotes that they had against you. And yet it was enough in this trial to send you away. You have this this sort of shock, I'm sure this numbness of, I just got convicted, you then go to prison. And then as a follow-up question, at what point does prison start to feel normal for you? Because it wasn't just a few months. It was a decade, a prime decade of your life. You're, you know, in your twenties, your twenties were stolen from you. 19 to 29, uh, all my twenties basically. And the, and the question about trial and being convicted, uh, it's a very interesting one to me because as I'm sitting there and they're presenting this quote-unquote evidence, the prosecution knows I'm innocent. He knows the evidence that he's putting forth is not accurate. Remind us of his name. Kevin Crane. Kevin Crane. Who is still a judge. He's now a judge. Yep. Has not been held accountable for his actions, which are a lot of actions that you can prove that he knows he put on perjured testimony. People he knew was lying to put me in prison for really 40 years. Fortunately, I only did 10. But uh, if it were up to him and it were up to the Columbia police who also know I'm innocent, I would still be in prison wasting away until I'm in my mid-50s. So that's, that's hard to, to fathom. And while I'm in trial and they're lying to the jury, I'm looking back at the people, the jury and the people in the, the audience there, and they're looking at me like I'm some kind of caged animal. And it was the worst feeling you can imagine because I'm just a normal kid. I was in college. And now these people are looking at me like I'm some disgusting thing, you know? Mm. And it's the look on these people's faces. Is, it was the hardest thing for me to get over and I knew there, I basically had no chance because my attorney was not very good. Kevin Crane. Well, that is a very kind way of putting it, I would say. <laughs> yeah. We'll get into that in a second. My yeah. goodness. Yeah. And Kevin Crane, the prosecutor who 
was corrupt. Was, was corrupt. That's the only was way. And, and is. is. I mean, I don't know. You can't shed that stain if you do something like that. That is a lifelong mark of corruption in my book. Certainly. And it blows my mind that he still has a job at all in the law, that he still is a member of the bar, let alone a judge, which I think speaks poorly of everyone involved in that process. Quickly on the prison stuff. Certainly. Because we are creatures of habit and routine. At some point, your life, your routine, your habit became that of an inmate. Um, You know, you're a young guy. You're a good-looking guy. Prison is a scary place. How did you make that adjustment? What were your coping mechanisms? How did you survive? Because to me, it's like you have to survive. You're there. It would be hard enough if, if you were there and you deserved it. You were there and you didn't deserve it. And there's a bunch of people in prison who say, oh, I didn't do it, right? That's that's a common trope. In your case, you actually didn't do it and the, and the trial was an absolute sham. How did you have the mental ability, sort of the mental fortitude to survive for a decade behind bars? Great question. And uh, I can honestly say it all goes back to family and the support and the strength that they gave me, the advice when I first got arrested, it was the second day, I think, I was talking to my father on the phone, and he said, man, obviously I'd do anything I can to help protect you, but I can't be in there with you. You have to do everything that you can to make yourself stronger, faster, and smarter if you want to survive this. And I did. I started working out that day. I started reading every day. Uh, that day, I, I mean, I, I spent six hours a day reading and two hours a day working out. And so that kind of helped me get over some of the mental and physical barriers that I probably would have had uh, dealing with a lot of really bad people. And so going to prison, as terrifying as it was, I was somewhat prepared because I was smarter than a lot of the people there because I'd been working on myself. I had two years in the county jail to prepare, and I was bigger than most people. So basically, it's like the bear in the woods theory, I I think. And it's like, as as long as I have somebody in the woods with me that's slower than me, I'm going to be safe, right? Mm. And prison's full of people who were dumber and weaker than I was. And I kind of leaned on that, you know. I uh, if you just stay out of a lot of bad things, uh, gambling, some of the weird sex things that go on there, like it's a weird, strange world. As long as you stay out of those kind of corners, then you're going to be okay, and other people are going to find the problems, and uh, and you can just kind of exist. Ryan, let's hold it right there. Let's take a break. When we come back, one of the most amazing elements of this story is your relationship with your father. We will bring in your father as soon as we come back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. A special hour on The Guy Benson Show. Ryan and Bill Ferguson joining me in studio. Ryan spent 10 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. And, Ryan, you were talking about family and support. Let's bring in your dad, Bill Ferguson, father of Ryan, who is the hero of this movie. He's the hero of this story. I cannot tell you, sir, how much respect I have for you. I mean, what is so incredible about this story, it's not just about grave injustice, and it is. It is also about some of the most incredible determination that I've ever seen. And you knew that your son was innocent. The world did not know that. The world had passed this whole thing by. He's rotting away in prison. You never got over it. You never allowed it really to be the new normal. You could not stand that this injustice was happening to your son. Talk about the process, the decisions that you made, and how you went about setting this right. Well, again, that's a great, uh, great question, Guy. Um, when the process started, we were all shocked. The whole family was, was totally shocked. I was just, just couldn't believe something like that could happen. And um, so within 24 hours, I realized this is real. And I know enough about the law that uh, you have to, if you depend on a lawyer or other people to rectify it, 
then you're going to be very disappointed. So I knew uh, that I was going to have to get busy. I would have to investigate the case myself. Was this after the conviction? No, no. This is at the this arrest. This before, okay. The arrest. And I did even more after the conviction. But I, uh, one of the first things I got was what's called discovery. I don't know if you know what that is, but uh, they don't want to give it to you. I mean, uh, we had to— It's have, what the prosecution has. It's what they that, have as, as evidence, and you have a right to see it. That, that is correct. Uh, but it's difficult to get, even though you have a right to it. And uh, we uh, had to get the judge to, uh, to compel the prosecutor to give us uh, the discovery, which we deserve, which we should have by law. And finally, finally, she gave him an ultimatum. Uh, that he had a, a week to, to give us the discovery. Once I got the discovery, which is uh, thousands of pages, or maybe I should say hundreds, a couple thousand pages, uh, I just read through that syllable by syllable, familiarizing myself with the case, seeing how it happened, how it all came together, and then we started putting our case together. Your son, Ryan, who we've been speaking to here on The Guy Benson Show, was, uh, I'd say, extremely, exceedingly polite when he referred to his defense attorney as perhaps lackluster. Uh, I was cringing, cringing as I watched this documentary. Some of the courtroom scenes where it, it was just mind-bending incompetence. Like, what What are you doing? Do you, Did you do any preparation at all for this? And this prosecutor who was I – would, I would almost use the word evil. I was also pretty sharp and could run circles around this person mm. and convince – the jury of something that didn't happen. If that's how I was feeling, watching it, knowing the outcome, I cannot fathom the frustration, to put it mildly, that you must have been feeling sitting there in the courtroom watching this. Like, what are you? What are you doing? Well, it is shocking, uh, especially when you're experiencing it firsthand and knowing there's nothing you can do about it because the process it's like a car going off a cliff. Uh, you're in the car. You're going off the cliff, and you know what's going to happen next. It's going to be a crash. Yeah, but you're and in the back seat. Then you're in the back seat. You can't even reach the steering wheel. Even if you could, there's nothing you can do about it. And that's the way you are in court. You you have, yeah, that's that's a good analogy. I'm in the back seat. I cannot get hold of the steering wheel. And even if I could, I couldn't steer the, the car back up the cliff. Right. And it's the Grand Canyon in this case because your son's right. going to prison for murder, a murder he didn't commit. Correct. So he's now in prison. Right. On the say-so of this other guy who's also in prison, right, who right. clearly has all sorts of issues. When you see him in the documentary, he's, he is uh, you know, a character and sort of this, this tragic person, and I, I imagine there's probably some anger towards him. I, how could there not be? What were a few of the turning points? Because getting a conviction overturned is actually really hard, as you know. I mean you went on this nationwide tour. <laughs> You're driving a car around begging people to pay attention to the case of your son, and it actually worked, but not for a long time through setback after setback, but then at last, the thing started to turn. The ship started to turn. How did you turn the ship? You know, I uh, as a kid, I used to watch a show that was called Gunsmoke, and in almost uh, uh, every show, they'd have a cattle stampede. The cows would run off, and the, the, the cowboys would get out in front of them and turn the herd, turn you know back, and, and that's the way it is in a trial. Uh, being convicted or being charged. It's a cattle stampede, and good luck on stopping a cattle stampede. You've got to turn the herd. How do you do that? Well, it turns out I did a, uh, a story with the local newspaper, and he was very sympathetic to our situation after I showed him the evidence. And he goes, I, I think that your son's being wrongfully uh, charged. I said, thank you. This is a journalist, a local this journalist. journalist. See, this, is where, this is where journalism really can do good in this world. It's why a lot of people get into journalism, because when the truth is on your side— Sometimes the media, 
because they get demonized, and I think they deserve it a lot of the time. Sometimes they do a lot of good, and I think it's safe to say you, Ryan, would still be in prison today if not for the press. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, we wrote this story, and I did something a little unusual. I, I said to the uh, the reporter, he was the top reporter, for the Tribune, the, 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 uh, the person at work that had died, and uh, uh, he wanted to do The murder it. victim yes. had worked at that. Okay. Yeah, and uh, so he—, he I, I said, you know, I'd like to do the interview with you, but I, I do have a stipulation. He goes, okay, well, what is it? I said, well, uh, I want to read your print before you put it out. He goes, oh, we don't do that. You don't understand. I go, well, you don't understand. If I cannot do that, this is going to be a really short interview. And he goes, this is the biggest case that's happened in Boone County, and I really want to be a part of it. I want to write the story. I said, and I'd like for you to, but I want, I'm, not, I'm not looking at your print uh, not looking at your story to be critical or try to get you to change. I just want to make sure what you put in there is correct. And he goes, that's it? I said, yeah. I said, he goes, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll send you uh, my draft and let's just see how it goes. He goes, I've never done this before. Mm. But, but uh, Extenuating circumstances. Yes. And he goes, I do want the story. And he goes, I, I, your reputation precedes you. I know you won't do it uh, unless, <laughs> unless you get your way. Yeah. You were okay. very stubborn, but you had to be. I had right? to be. If you were not stubborn... Ryan would be in prison still. I think so. Our conversation with Ryan and Bill Ferguson continues after this on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's a special happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Ryan and Bill Ferguson in studio talking about this shocking, wrongful conviction and finally justice. What actually turned it? What finally shook loose where you could prove the stuff that you knew to be true? How were you finally able to prove it and also in such a way that it was like eligible for appeal? Because some things may prove seemingly that someone is innocent, but it under the rules of evidence and under the law, it actually doesn't count. And, and it's not something where you would have standing to challenge something. So how did you get around that? What was the tipping point or tipping points? Well, uh, so that story, he wrote five parts, and it came to Manhattan. It came to uh, 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 40 hours. And, they, and the producer saw it. And the producer thought, we'd like to do the story. So they contacted me, and they said, we'd like to come to Columbia and, and talk to you about this story. So they said, what should we do? I said, let's walk the crime scene. And I had a huge three-ring notebook with all the information in it. Yeah, I remember. And, and, and so we walked the crime scene. And I said, now right over here, uh, the, uh, the police did such and such. And um, uh, the reporter said, now, how, how do you know that, Mr. Ferguson? And I said, oh, it's in Police Report 254. She goes, do you have Police Report 254? I said, yeah, it's right here. She goes, okay. So we went around the whole tour like that. And then we got back to the car where we started. Uh, she goes, could we have a copy of that? And I go, this is your copy. I gave her the entire notebook. <laughs> Because I anticipated that they would want that. The thing that made it unique, and I you know, look, look at a lot of those crime shows, the thing that made this unique is that uh, uh, I was able to to give them documented evidence. And Ryan and I said right from the very beginning, we're not going to say or do anything unless we can document it. We're not going to get into rumors, innuendos. We're not going to talk badly about people. We're only going to talk about the facts. If we cannot use documentation, then we're not going to talk about it. And so by dateline, or 40 hours looking at the uh, police reports, that's the documentation, then that gave them the courage 
to go forth and really get into this case because now it's not based on people crying and upset and you know acting it's like it's not that. emotions and feelings it's some verifiable facts right and and, and there were there were eyewitnesses Right. right. So it wasn't just the dream. It wasn't like, you know, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this man had a dream. This other guy over here, the defendant, was in the dream and therefore sent him to prison. They found some witnesses who claimed that Ryan Ferguson was there. And that also was a big shift in this case when they started to recant. Someone reached out to you, right? Yes. Uh, well, several people. Uh, one in particular, uh, we created a web page, and I, I, I knew sooner or later that somebody would get on onto the computer, would get onto the web page, and she did. And she goes, "I'd like to talk to you sometime." And I met her at the crime scene, uh, like uh, uh, was after the trial actually. And uh, and she said, "I just want to tell you, face to face, that that was not your son. That was not Ryan Ferguson there." And uh, I said, "Jill, you are one hundred percent certain." that my son, Ryan Ferguson, was not the person uh, that was at the crime. She goes, absolutely. I said, okay, great. So that led us to— And the prosecutor knew that. Oh, absolutely. Right? And Ryan saying, wants to jump in. Yeah, I'd love to jump in here because the prosecution knew that— she told that to the prosecution, Yeah. and she described him as scary and manipulative, and he did not give us that information. Mm-hmm. There, That is a little, pe- a little bit of— all the information he didn't get of us. He so hid the, a lot the discovery of that was held from you, which is not allowed, that would be misconduct, right? So was Absolutely. that was his misconduct ultimately the way you were able to get your foot in the door to get this thing overturned? Well, ultimately, it's called a Brady violation. It's a very technical term, a Brady violation. And it started in um, 1963 that you have to reveal information. But that's the key thing. You just elaborated on that, that, uh, that Shauna Arndt, she's the, the witness, told the prosecutor on two occasions that Ryan was not the person, but he didn't tell that to anybody. And when the trial occurred, she was a, a witness. He, I did not ask her, can you point out the person you saw in the uh, parking lot? Although the defense attorney didn't either, right? Like, am I remembering that correctly? That's correct. But, but, oh. but, I, under, but I understand why. There, there's a reason for that. Uh, no, no defense attorney would ask that because he didn't know what she was going to right, say. Right, but you can, I guess she... It wasn't his role to prep that that witness, but at the same time, it's a little he tricky. could have asked that question if you guys had been provided with the statements that right. this witness had given it, the prosecutor that it wasn't right. you. Then he would have had Thank the you. ammo. So instead, he, it was just one thing after another that led to the conviction, but then it starts to unwind. At some point, a very prominent, high-powered lo- lawyer gets involved because oh. the initial attorney was— Terrible. <laughs> in comes Kathleen Zellner. Right. So, Ryan, talk to us about Kathleen Zellner. And was there a point where you, because I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes, I would, at some stage of this thing, refuse to give myself any more hope ever again, because you would, I'd, I'd imagine, build up hope only to get crushed and then crushed and then crushed. And I would might just say, like, enough. Did Kathleen Zellner's involvement start to light that flicker again of, of hope? And when did you start to maybe suspect, I really do have a chance of getting out of here? Kathleen definitely changed how I felt about the whole situation. And when I thought I would be getting out of prison, she came on board in 2009. And shortly thereafter, And you've been in prison at that point for how long? Uh, since 2004. All right. So, so five years, yes. halfway through this yeah. is when she got on board. That was a rough so five years. <laughs> you st- but then you had five more years. Mm-hmm. 
That's that's the crazy thing. Five more years. Yeah, I got out in 2000. And, and even with somebody as amazing as Kathleen Zellner right. and all the evidence that we had already dug up proving my innocence, the whole world can see this at this point. They, it still took that long to get out. And that's what, you know, one of the many issues with our criminal justice system is if it is wrong, if it is proven to be wrong, there are not many avenues for relief. They want to maintain the, the right, a jury verdict of the is basically final, right? With Pretty very honest. few exceptions. They like the finality and they want to leave it that way. There's a case in Missouri, went to the Supreme Court, and they they literally argued, even though they knew and had DNA evidence that the person on death row was innocent, that they should allow him to be killed to keep the finality of conviction. Yeah, see, this is part of the reason, just as a digression politically, I'm a conservative. I used to be in favor of the death penalty. I am not anymore as it currently stands because I don't think it is okay for the state to end someone's life who has a chance of being innocent. Right. And in your case, if it were a capital case, right, these things drag on forever on appeal. But the idea that you, Ryan, could have been put to death yeah. for this is absolutely terrifying They're and unacceptable to me. They're, They're going to try, try. But you are now here sitting in a studio with me in New York City because you – had the ability to at least pursue all of this stuff while still living and breathing and 100%. not being put to death by the state based on an egregious series of mistakes and, in fact, aggressive malfeasance, intentional mm. malfeasance of the state. That's part of the reason why I turned against the death penalty. At least, you know, we can get into a more nuanced conversation. It's, it's a little bit more of a gray area than that for me on a policy level. But I want to make sure that we get as much of this in as we can. At some point in this process, the other guy, the dreamer, who's also in prison, he writes you. He writes you a letter. That ultimately concludes with him testifying at your retrial. I know I'm jumping way ahead, but we have to. You finally get enough evidence on your side and you marshal enough facts to convince the process, the system, to give you another crack at it. Once you had that second opportunity, there was no way that you guys were going to let that slip by. The two of you, your new attorney, this guy, Chuck, you know, your buddy who dreamed, literally dreamed up the murder, your involvement in it. What was his message to you and what did he ultimately testify on round two? Ultimately, he wrote a letter and I remember getting a letter. I'm in prison, of course, and it has Charles Erickson's name on it. And I'm like, I'm getting a letter from Charles Erickson. It blew my mind. And he just acknowledged the fact that he lied and that he wanted to come clean and, and admit that. And How so, long were you in prison when you That got, was in 2009. It was right after Kathleen came right, So five or six years mm-hmm. he's been sitting there knowing that he lied. Correct. And he finally decides he wants to do something about it years into your bogus conviction right. and imprisonment. Okay. And so finally, you know, it takes time to get hearing. Uh, you have to go through the courts. And so every appeal takes a year or two years. So whenever they deny one, you know, I know two years of my life are gone. And I know, you know, when I get that letter, another two years – will happen before I even get into court and get that ruled on. So I'm happy, but I'm also like, you know, I'm going to be here for a while. So we end up getting a hearing. We end up uh, having Erickson admit that he lied. We have all the evidence proving that I'm innocent. And I'm going to jump ahead here, uh, but Jerry Trump also acknowledged that he lied. The two people who testified against me said I was there. They both admitted to lying, subjecting themselves to 30 years in prison for lying so, you know, they had every incentive to just continue with their lie, and they went ahead and acknowledged that they they uh, they did wrong. Well, and thank God that happened, because I'd imagine there are some cases where people said, well, I might feel a little bad about this, but I'm not going to prison. Happens every day. For this, yeah. So, uh, at long last, 
Let's fast forward to the end. You now are in front of a new judge. All the evidence is out there. This prosecutor who put you away, what, what does he have to say for himself? And then what happens? Well, before we can jump to the end, there's there's a hiccup in the middle. And uh, I just have to bring it up because Judge Daniel Green in Jefferson City uh, I pretty much is friends with Kevin Crane and protected him. So both the people who put the me— The prosecutor. The prosecutor, Kevin Crane, yeah. So this judge and this prosecutor, buddies, they probably play golf together. Who knows? Um, Crane comes and testifies at the hearing. You can see it all on, on the, the documentary. But long story short— 100% prove my innocence at that hearing. The judge takes a year to rule on it, basically, and denies it. So, And when did he deny it? And he denied it on the anniversary of the murder. So he literally waited a year to basically send There's a message. Theatrics that, there. Yeah, to send a message that it doesn't matter what evidence you have or that the whole world can see it. We're not going to let you out. So how did you get past that? Fortunately, there's an appeals process. So another year, two years goes by. Hmm. And, uh, and, you know, that was the most crushing moment, I think, for all of us, really, because all the evidence, 100% proved my innocence, the whole world can see it, and they can still get away with denying it and leaving me in prison. So, fortunately, we went to the uh, Western District Court of Appeals, uh, multiple judges, they're not related, they're not tied into the community, and that's where we felt like we would actually get a fair hearing, and we did, and a three-judge panel said, unequivocally, you know, they had evidence hidden from us, Brady violations, and the case should be overturned. And clearly uh, that I'm innocent and that, you know, they could try to retry me if they wanted to. But yeah, that was they, not going to happen. No, because everybody could see uh, that there's no evidence that I didn't belong there to begin with. So that was very fortunate that we had already had all that evidence and the state chose not to. It's just incredible. And it is outrageous. I want to get some final thoughts from Ryan in particular when we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Home stretch on this Friday and a special, unusual, important edition of The Guy Benson Show. I am in studio with Ryan and Bill Ferguson talking about this wrongful conviction under which Ryan spent a decade of his life, nearly all of his 20s, in prison for a murder he did not commit. So, Bill, this was a decade of your life. This was a decade of your son's life. It finally is resolved. You have finally actually won. Talk to us about the first time outside of prison, in freedom, that you were able to hug Ryan? Well, it was that they released him at the Boone County uh, pr- uh, Jail, and um, uh, he came over, and uh, we had a big hug. First time outside of uh, the prison, but we were still in the confines of the jail. And then we went over to the Tiger Hotel, and I I'd, I'd reserved uh, the ballroom. I would hope so. so Do you have a drink? I would have had a drink. Yeah, uh, well, we're going to have a drink good, later. Good man. But, uh, but we want to get there because I had uh, put out uh, a notice that we're going to have a press conference and Brian would be speaking. And uh, gosh, what were there, like 15 cameras there, I think? Uh, networks from St. Louis, Kansas City, Columbia, Jefferson City. Everybody's there. The ballroom was completely maxed out, I feel like. And Ryan stood up and gave uh, one of the best speeches. Uh, it wasn't like a can speech. That was speaking from the heart. And it was so well, so well spoken and so well architect, uh, articulated. Uh, I think the, you got a, a, a big clap for that. And uh, uh, that was so re- reassuring. And then I got another hug, and that's the one that really made the difference. We're on the stage every, in front of everybody, in front of all the television cameras, and now we know 
It's real. It's real. It's that real. was a good hug. And the, <laughs> well, the first hug, literally, they I didn't even know if I was getting out. I, I had no idea. I knew that the conviction was overturned, but I sat in prison for a week after that. Then they came, got me, took me to the county jail. I didn't know if they were going to rearrest me and then put me in the county jail, try to retry me. I didn't know what was going on. And I'm sitting in the back of a van. I'm handcuffed. I'm shackled. I'm in orange jumpsuit. I'm not free by any means. And I see... Uh, my father, my mother, uh, my girlfriend, they, they all walked into the Sally Port. And I knew at that point they would have never let them in there if I wasn't going home. And they all walk in and then they open the door. Before I can hug them, they have to unshackle me. Mm-hmm. They're sitting there watching me be uncaged and unleashed. And then we hug. And so that was good. But like you said, the, the best hug was being away, from there, <laughs> being away from prison. All yeah. of this stuff is in the documentary. Mm-hmm. I mean, you need to see this for yourself. If you have enjoyed this hour here on The Guy Benson Show... Please go watch Dream Killer. Last question, and it's for you, Ryan. Are you angry that a decade was stolen from you? And second part of the question is, what would be the number one reform that you would like to see to a system that really screwed you? Thank you so much for this question. Uh, I think it's the most important question, the most important thing we can take away from our whole experience. My family is mine. The 10 years that I lost, I am angry but it's what you do with that anger. And I think I try to do positive things with that anger. And the most positive thing I can do is stop other innocent people from going to prison for crimes they did not commit because this is our criminal justice system. It could happen to you. It could happen to one of our family members. Again, it could happen to anybody we know. And the reason it can happen, the reform that needs to happen is there needs to be accountability for prosecutors. If like our system is designed and worded so well that if it worked the way it says it should, it would be a, a perfect system. But there's human error and there and there's bad people. There's bad people. And they're and, not always, quote unquote, the bad guys. Right. Either. There, there are literally thousands of people in, in prison for crimes they didn't commit. And I've met hundreds of them, literally hundreds of them. And in almost every case, a prosecutor knew that they were sending an innocent person to prison and there has been no accountability. They're, they're not arrested. They're not put in prison. They're not they don't even lose their law license. I think three prosecutors have lost their law license in over 3000 wrongful convictions. Yeah. I mean, and look, we on this show support law enforcement and the criminal justice system strongly. There are bad people, many of them out there. We need to be protected from them. That's what the system is designed to do. And I think as conservatives who support law enforcement, we can also recognize, speaking for myself, that there are flaws in the system. And it's not weakness to admit that and to try in good faith to fix some of those weaknesses. I think that's something that's not left or right or center or anything. That's what we should all aspire to. And that's why I wanted to bring this story to our audience because, uh, you know, now it's years old. You're on to a great life. You're living here in New York. Uh, You know, your dad's in town. You guys are hanging out. But there was a decade-long nightmare, and you are one example of far too many where this can happen. And I think we should all commit ourselves to at least the goal of reducing the number of wrongful convictions that happen in the country. And I just want people to really hear your story, think about these issues, go watch the documentary Dream Killer if, if you're curious. What does this guy look like? What does his dad look like? It's, it's an amazing, amazing film. Um, Bill, I cannot overstate my respect for you and just indefatigable for a decade for, on behalf of your son. Just, I'm sure you've heard it a thousand times, but I am in awe of what you did. And Ryan, I mean... The fact that you're still here after a decade in prison and all those setbacks is just uh, an incredible testament. I'm I'm honored to have you guys on the show. Thank you both for coming in. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Ryan care, and Bill Ferguson. Wow. The documentary on Netflix, Dream Killer. 
What an inspirational but also sobering and eye-opening way to enter the weekend. Thank you both for being here. Thank you all for listening. Have a good weekend. Back here Monday, it's The Guy Benson Show. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.